Welcome to the Button and Kelly Hockey Podcast. Mike Kelly and Craig Button with you. This is episode number one. We will be doing a weekly podcast. We'll have guests, although we don't have any today. This is just the beginning. And uh, lots of stuff to talk about in the NHL and around hockey, which we will do every week for you. Craig, how you doing? I'm good. Do we have to limit it to just hockey? Can we not even talk about other things? Well, I know you're a, you are a renaissance man. You can talk about <laughs> politics, finance, whatever. Well, you know, the price of oil in Alberta around the world is dropping. And <laughs> we're going to probably talk about some teams that are dropping too. So, you know what? We'll make some economic analogies to teams in the NHL. Hey, you Rising about, and falling commodities. All right. You talk about oil. The, uh, the price of an oiler is going up big time. We're talking about sweet baby Connor McJesus in Edmonton and that goal that he scored against the Columbus Blue Jackets. The kid is in his first game back after missing months with a broken collarbone, and the injury happens when he goes crashing into the boards driving the net. Guess what? He's not shy to drive the net. He does the exact same thing. That's got to be a goal of the year candidate. What I think you have to keep in mind with Connor McDavid is that play that he got hurt on, he's made dozens of times, and usually the pain that is felt is by the opponent knowing that they just got beat like a rented mule so he he kind of toe picks and he ends up you know ending up with an unfortunate injury but i love the fact that at the outset of that game todd mcclellan said you're starting connor mcdavid you take that opening face off and then connor got right into attack mode and i think that you talk about trying to understand the mindset of an elite player an elite athlete i think connor felt comfortable in terms of competing he knew he had to get a bump and a feel here and there but to me his mindset was clear and he was going to attack and i i felt as the game went on it just went attack 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 and it's hard to believe that after missing 37 games he looked stronger in the third period than he did at the beginning of the game. Yeah, I have a feeling he might have been doing some squats while he was out with that broken collarbone, working the leg muscles a little bit. That was crazy speed through the neutral zone. And, uh, you know, he goes around three guys, and he made it look pretty easy. You look at the replay, Jack Johnson's on the right side, Justin Falk's on the left side. I don't know why Justin Falk's coming over uh, to the right side the way that he did. Maybe that's why Columbus has allowed more goals than anyone else in the NHL. Um, but at the same time, I heard you guys talking on Leafs uh, lunch on TSN radio saying, you know what, he had 32 games left from when, the time he's coming back. He's going to score 38 points, 40 points, 42 points. I thought that was crazy. This is an 18-year-old. He's going to come back and score at the pace that only one guy in the NHL is doing, and that's Patrick Kane. I thought that was nuts. He puts up three points in his first game. Well, and keep in mind, before he got hurt, he was almost at a point a game uh, with respect to scoring. So now he puts up three points. If you look at that game, he could have touched him earlier in the year in Calgary. He, he, he missed a hat trick. He could have had six or seven points that night. It's, it's the way that Connor McDavid generates opportunities. And, you know, other players get on a roll and you go, okay, that can't last. But game in, game out, Connor McDavid generates quality scoring chances, grade A scoring uh, opportunities. And when you're able to do that and you're able to do it in such a fashion that you're not going to be stymied in any one scenario. He can, he can do it. You think about the goal that he set up uh, Eberle on. I mean, he, he fakes 
Corpusalo right to the ice, takes that puck to the net, finds the loose puck, never loses track of where the puck is, and, and absolutely knows where Jordan Eberle is. I mean, I don't know if Jordan Eberle will ever score uh, an easier goal that's not an empty net goal, but th that just speaks to how dangerous he can be. He had a breakaway, and inside his own blue line, Defensive zone blue line, Connor McDavid at that point in time is a dangerous offensive player. And I think that that's what allows him to be so prolific. You know, I think at times we get excited about young players and we, we throw out, like you said, 38, 40, 42 points. Well, after the game last night, I sent a note uh, to Brian Hayes and Jeff O'Neill. And I said to them, I said, I might have been uh, a little bit uh, short on the 42 points. He might have more than that. I mean, I know that that's uh, uh, maybe a little bit uh, too excited, but that's what Connor McDavid does. And last year when he came back after the World Junior Tournament, he lit the Ontario Hockey League on fire. And, 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 and you know, was, was close to unstoppable uh, at, at, as a junior going into his draft year. Artemi Panarin, I think he's got 47 points. Uh, good candidate to win Rookie of the Year. McDavid, obviously, I think 14 games, 15 points. How close can he come to Panarin? Well, I wouldn't look at it as in terms of, of points right now because I don't think he can catch uh, Panarin. But when you start to look at people and, and when they start to vote, will look at Connor McDavid and they'll go, wait, he's 18 years old. His impact on the Edmonton Oilers was every bit as significant as Panarin's was on the Chicago Blackhawks. And, and I do believe that McDavid can have a, a significant impact on the Edmonton Oilers. And, you know, then you start to consider that Panarin's a lot older than Connor McDavid, yeah. five years older than Connor McDavid. And, and now you start to, to take a step back and you start to go, how will the voters look at that? How will they gauge a, a, an 18-year-old, just turned 19-year-old player, as opposed to a player that's going to be 24 uh, this, this calendar year? And, and that may factor in if Connor McDavid continues to have the impact that he does on the Edmonton Oilers. So you ask me, will it become close in points? I don't think it will because the Chicago Blackhawks are a pretty good offensive team. But do I think the impact that Connor McDavid can have on the Edmonton Oilers will be every bit as significant as Panarin? I would say yes and maybe even greater so. And that might be reflected not only in points but in wins and yeah. the type of uh, impact he'll have for his line mates, whoever they, they, they may be. So you ask me, can he win the Calder Trophy? Yes. But not, it won't be based on points. It'll be based on, a, on, a, on multiple factors. Yeah, I don't think he's got a chance to win the Calder this year. But that's not a huge deal because we're going to talk about a guy right now who also didn't win a Calder trophy. But turned Well, out let me ask you this, player. though. Let me come All back right. to you this. Okay, so All you right. say not a chance, right? No based chance. On, no based chance on, for McDavid. Based on what? He, he's missed too many games. You know, Ryan Nugent Hawkins had a great chance to win the Calder Trophy in his rookie year, but he missed uh, a bunch of games that ended up going to Gabriel Landeskog. Yeah, yeah. So, so let me ask you this though, like, so, like, but they were both the same age. They both had come into right. the league at the same age. So I'm just talking about the voting. If Connor McDavid, let's just say Connor McDavid ends up with 45 points or okay. near 50 points for the rest of the year, but he's at a point a game clip for 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 his last 32 games. You know, does that not factor in when people start to vote and say, 
Well, you know, Panarin's on Chicago. He plays with Kane. You know, Connor McDavid at 18, he's so much younger than Panarin. He doesn't have the same support group around him. That, so that's what I'm saying is his chance for winning. I'm not saying it based on points. I'm, I'm basing it on what impact can he have because he will have more than a half a season, and the, the second half of a season could be more material in voters' minds in the first half. Yeah, I don't disagree with you, but everything in the league is, is based on points when it comes to awards. Look at Norris trophies and, and Calder trophy in the history of the award. And you got Dylan Larkin and other guys who are still younger and having good seasons. I just think he's missed too many games. We'll wait and find out. Hopefully he can, he can make it a race because he's a ton of fun to watch. Um, I had a great segue talking about guys who didn't win the Calder trophy <laughs> pretty well before you jumped in on me. It's all good, though. We want to talk about Sidney Crosby. Looks like somebody's found his touch. I remember it was about six weeks ago. He was 87th in league scoring, and all of a sudden it's, you know what, Crosby. He's lost a step. The concussions have caught up to him. He doesn't have it anymore. Uh, the guy's gone on an absolute bender, had a natural hat trick last night, first uh, of any player in the NHL this season. All of a sudden he's 14th in league scoring. Can this guy get into the top five? Absolutely he can, and he can because uh, he's got – an abundance of skill and his determination level to be an elite player, to be the best player, not only game in, game out, but shift in, shift out. It, it, there's nobody that exceeds him in that regard. And, you know, it's amazing, Mike, uh, over, the, over the years, how, how quickly, and, and, and I use the word quickly, people want to give up on elite superstar players. And, you know, to me, I, I, and I said it, I said it in, in November, I said it uh, a few weeks ago, I'm all in on Sidney Crosby. I was all in on Sidney Crosby when he wasn't, because when you watch the games and you watch the way he's playing and you watch the determination he plays with, you, you can see that he, he, he didn't have enough support around him. The puck wasn't coming to him. I think Mike Sullivan deserves a tremendous amount of credit for not uh, enhancing Sidney Crosby per se, but in allowing the Pittsburgh Penguins to play to their strengths. I think that their blue line isn't real crisp with the puck. I thought they were spending a little bit too much time in their own zone. They were giving up some really good scoring chances. Marc-Andre Fleury was, was outstanding. If it wasn't for him, they would have lost a lot more games. What I like about Mike Sullivan, the Pittsburgh Penguins play at a lot higher tempo. And he recognizes that they have defensemen that maybe aren't great with the puck, but he says to them, listen, we're still getting that puck out of our zone quickly. We're going to move it out quickly so that we can skate onto it. Instead of trying to come to the puck and try to make a controlled play, sometimes you can't make a controlled play. Sometimes you can't make a precision pass. I think that Mike Sullivan has really uh, initiated that type of a mindset within their group, and that has allowed Malkin and Crosby now to take full advantage of their skills and you know uh, subsequently the Pittsburgh Penguins are on a real roll and you know too many too, too much of the time I, I, I'm a firm believer that we don't recognize the importance of coaching and not coaching in terms of X's and O's coaching in terms of what do we have and how do we maximize what we have in a perfect world everybody wants to have you know past tape to tape, come out of your zone clean, everything. Well, guess what? If you don't have the players, you might not be able to do it exactly that way, but you got to find ways to do it. Mike Sullivan, to me, has done a terrific job there. Yeah, he's been putting Chris Letang 5-on-5 five five a lot more with Sidney Crosby, and 
guess what? That's translated to success for Sidney Crosby, having one of the best puck-moving defensemen in the NHL. Uh, Penguins now sitting in that second wild-card spot. They have 57 points, so they're getting back into the playoff mix and uh, looking like a pretty good hockey team. No, who else looks like a pretty good hockey team? I'm going to talk about a team that's got a plus 30 goal differential. That's second. That's third, actually. Only the Capitals and the Dallas Stars are better. I'm going to talk about a team that set a franchise record with four straight wins of three or more goals and a team that's won 16 straight games when Aaron Ekblad's in the lineup. The Florida Panthers do not go away. They've got a seven-point lead in the Atlantic Division. And so people still say, you know, Dale Talon hasn't done a great job. Dale Talon's done an incredible job. This team looks like not only can they win the Atlantic, is this a team that might come out of the East and get to a cup final? Well, I mean, they got a real significant opponent in the East of the Washington Capitals. But on Tuesday night, but on, tu- yeah, on Tuesday night, they, they beat the Washington Capitals, uh, albeit Caps didn't have Alexander Ovechkin in the lineup. And, you know, but, the, but when you're measuring yourself against what is the Eastern Conference's best team at the moment, you know, that still is significant. To, when we talk about Dale Talon, though, it's not just you can look at a team and wins and losses. There's a couple of things that I I really believe you have to keep in mind with Dale. Number one is, is that he was faced with a decision three years ago in the draft, coming up now three years ago in the draft, at at the second overall pick, and so the first overall pick was Nathan McKinnon, and you know Seth Jones, a really good defenseman, was was there and really, you know, he he decided that. They didn't have enough strength up the middle of the ice. Remember, he had drafted Good Branson. Kulikov was there. Uh, you know, they they had traded for Brian Campbell. So he's looking at his defense and he's thinking to himself, "That centerman like Barkov is someone you need." So he stepped up and took Barkov at number two. And people were like, "Geez, how does he do that?" Like, you know. But then when you fast forward to the next year, they didn't have a good year. They finish with with the first overall pick and they take Aaron Ekblad. Well. You, you, when you start to look at, at a draft, and, and to me, this is the importance of the draft. It's not about just looking at one player as the key to, to you know, really changing your team's fortunes if your name isn't Connor McDavid, Mary Lemieux. We all know that those players are far and few between Sidney Crosby. But now he took Barkoff and he came back with Ekblad. And it, it just drives home the point that it's about more than one player. It's never about one player. And you cannot have tunnel vision. And I think that for Dale Talon, you know, his experience in Chicago, his experience in the league, allowed him to look at that and go, wait a second here. We can't just, yeah, Seth Jones is good, but this Barkoff can really build our team in another way. He wasn't thinking that he was getting that bad, but it's that right. type of what I call, what I call step-by-step progression of thought that is necessary uh, in management to understand how you're building your team that, that allows you to take advantage. And I think I love Dale exhibited that. I the Blackhawks because, he, you know, everybody knows he was there and was a big part of building the team that won the Stanley Cup in 2010 and went on to win three more in the next six years. And, yeah, he drafted Jonathan Taves, and then he got Patrick Kane first overall. Um, but at the same time, he took Duncan Keith, you know, in later rounds. Corey Crawford, Nick Shalmers, and other guys that are – Warriors for that team. And in 2007, they had the number one overall pick. 2009, they're in the conference final. 2010, they win it. And now he's doing something similar in Florida where he's built up a lot of good picks. But he's also brought in a bunch of good veterans. And I draw a parallel between the Florida Panthers and the Edmonton Oilers. Both teams had years of top three picks. Edmonton decided they're just going to stack up a bunch of forwards. 
and didn't bring in any veterans with a winning pedigree, which is crucial in a locker room, as you know. It's not just it's not a video game where you can just load up a bunch of 18-year-olds and say, yeah, these guys are really good, now we're going to start winning. Florida, to me, did it the right way. They brought in older guys to help the younger guys along, and they have a perfect mixture, and that's something Edmonton never did and still hasn't done. Well, I, I, I mean, I would be, uh, I, I'd be a little bit more forgiving to Edmonton. I mean, it, it wasn't so much that, that who they drafted in the top part of the draft. The, the problem, I think, for the Edmonton Oilers was what they did after, in every round after the first round. They never got the Duncan Keys or the Nick Shalmersons or any of those types of players. They, I mean, Andrew Ference is as quality a guy as you're going to find uh, in hockey that I've ever come across. And so they brought him in after winning a cup there. So I don't think it was a lack of trying to bring in quality people. I think the, the bottom line was they didn't have enough players coming out of different parts of the draft and ultimately you know that's how you're going to be judged and you know you can have the greatest leadership you can have the greatest uh top end talent coming in but their their gap was was so significant and throughout the middle of their lineup call it from player you know eight to 16 that you just can't overcome it regardless of uh, of the other two areas what what Dale also like what Dale also recognizes too he drafted Erica Branson third overall he also drafted Jonathan Huberto third overall every draft is different every draft is going to offer you something different and you know Jonathan Tays went third overall Guess what? Dale Talon also drafted Cam Barker third overall. And it, it, that, that's not a criticism of Cam Barker. What it is is it just tells you that it's not just about the third overall pick. That, you know, Jonathan Huberto is different than Eric Branson. Cam Barker's obviously uh, very different than Jonathan Taze. But without the Duncan Keys, without Brent Seabrook at 15th overall, without Nicholas Schalmerson, without Corey Crawford in the second round, I just mentioned four core players. Four core players. They've, I mean, Crawford's only been there for two Stanley Cups. Shalmerson, Keith, and Seabrook have been there for all three. They're signed there for, for a longer term. And to me, that's where you find a way to, to move on the right side of winning and, and the path to success. You know, you look at Andrew Shaw. So you now look at the uh, Florida Panthers. They have those elements in place. He trades for Brian Campbell. Really good player, fine, steady. But that defense right now, people ask me a lot about Alex Petrovic. Well, Alex Petrovic is a player now, if you're going to try to scale him up the lineup, you're, gonna, you're asking him to do too much. But now you put him in a right spot, right? Ekblad's your number one. Gabranson plays your number two spot. And now Petrovic can slide in perfectly to your number three. No fun to play against. Big, strong, heavy guy, developing and not asked to do too much. I think that's the other part for Dale. How you build your team, is it, it really is not just about the quality of player you get, but do you get players into positions where they can contribute optimally? And I think he's done a fantastic job of that. Hey, there's no bad players in the NHL. There's only miscast players, right? Yep, you're exactly right, Mike. Um, how about the Montreal Canadiens? They lost again. Um, they are in big trouble. They have slid now below Philadelphia, Carolina, New Jersey. Those aren't even playoff teams. This is a team that in the first 25 games had a huge lead uh, in the Atlantic Division and a big lead at the top of the Eastern Conference. And it's been, you look at the 25-game splits basically, 26 now in the second half, it's been night and day with this team. They're missing Carey Price, which is obviously a huge problem, but they can't score either. What has to be done in Montreal to get this thing turned around, assuming prices, in fact, for maybe another month, maybe more? 
Yeah, and I, well, I, I think that we can look at the scoring, and we, I, I think that it's obvious that the Montreal Canadiens have struggled scoring. Uh, and you, you, you consider the fact that they've had players literally dry up. You know, it seems that from the moment Thomas Placanet signed his his two year extension, that he he hasn't given him very much, and and he hasn't. And David DeHarnay, you know, it just isn't giving him enough productivity. And Lars Eller isn't giving him enough productivity. And then, you know, you had Gallagher that was out for a stretch of time, and now, to me, their only natural threat to score is Max Pacioretty, and that's not enough. That's not enough to to threaten teams. Carey Price was the MVP of the National Hockey League last season, and deservedly so. And we saw what his impact was. To me, he was so much like Dominic Hasek with respect to intimidating the opponent. I think that in Corey, Carey, excuse me, Carey Price's absence, we have seen that his impact is far greater than we may have even known. The intimidation factor. You, you, you know, I, I, they brought in Mike Condon, nice backup. Then they trade for Ben Scrivens. Bottom line is, the goaltending isn't good enough. You yeah. know, and, and you can look at the numbers. I think that Montreal, the way they've changed their approach to playing, more up speed, more up ice speed, more tempo, more pressure. I don't have a problem with the way Subban has played. I, I know that over the course of a, a game here, a game there, you're going to have that. I know Markov. That, but to me, overall, Petrie and Markov and Subban, those players, they've been fine for me. But the offense, the center ice position, has it been good enough? When you have Galchenyuk moving into the middle of the ice and it's his first full-time, you know, uh, you know, position uh, to, to grab a hold of the responsibilities and then you have around him two players that are really not contributing very much in yeah. terms of offense you know it, it becomes a, a real disproportionate uh, balance throughout your lineup and I can say this I have no idea how you're going to go trade for a game-breaking score unless you're going to give up a real significant player. So what if you don't have to trade? What if you can do it within? I mean, I can think of a guy that uh, captained the worst division in hockey to an all-star game victory and won MVP. He's just sitting in the minors. Well, and you know what? I think that the story of, of John Scott is wonderful. Uh, we saw it play out. But much like Cinderella, when the, when the clock struck 12, you know, the story ended. And the story has ended for John Scott. And uh, you know what? It, it, it's one that will live in infamy, but it's not the answer to the Montreal Canadiens' woes. No, it was and, a great story, though. Yeah. And, and that being said, all kidding aside, you know, Mark Bergevin is a smart man. And Mark Bergevin, in my view, he, he, he knows you just don't go down the, the hockey 7-Eleven store and go down the scoring aisle and say, oh, I'm just going to go pick up this score. Oh, and I'll pick up two of those scores. You don't get them. You have to be patient. You have to understand that, yeah, he can go. If he wants to trade P.K. Subban, he can go get one. He can go get a real good score. But now he's got a hole on his blue line. Okay, and let me he, ask you this then. Um, yeah. Do you think that the Canadians wait until Carey Price comes back before they make any kind of significant move to address their scoring? Because my fear is if they do that, they could be already so far out that they can't come back and make the playoffs. They might already be so far out. And, I and, think and they I, are. And I think that if you talk about Carey Price, it's going to be interesting to see if they bring Carey Price back at all. You know, when you think about an injury that's kept him out so long, you want to be 100% sure uh, that, that when he comes back in, he's healthy. So why are you going to put a goaltender, especially your most valuable player, in, in any type of potential jeopardy if the, the chances of moving there? And I know people talk about significant. 
the Montreal Canadiens, like unless you're going to trade P.K. Subban and first-round picks and make a block, there's nothing significant out there. There's yeah. just nothing significant out there. So Mark Bergevin is a hard-working man. He's, a, he's, a, he's, he's got his finger on the pulse of the league. And he's trying to figure out, okay, what can we add? I mean, he, he signed Thomas Fleischman. He signed Alex Semin because he understood that he had uh, some challenges in the scoring department. And Alex Semin didn't work out. I thought it was a good risk. Thomas Fleischman was working out for a period of time. He's another player that's dried up. But Mark Bergevin understands. He's also trying to fit things into a salary cap. He's also trying to understand, okay, is it one of those years where, you know what, some things just didn't go our way. The worst thing, I, I think there's two things a manager has to avoid. Number one, looking to inexperienced players to try to get you out of a, a, a real problem. I think that you, you're asking too much of it. You want to bring in, in my view, a younger player that can handle things and be in a position to uh, to succeed. And I'm not saying that, you, that, that bringing up a young player can't work. I'm just saying you can't look to that as a solution. Yeah. And number two, be careful about making trades in, 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 in an act of desperation. And in a position uh, of weakness. Well, and that's where, and that's, and that's what gets teams into trouble. And you know, even we talking earlier about Dale Talon. We go back to Dale Talon, and Dale Talon was asked about the free agent. He said, "Well, yeah, there's a lot of good free agents out there, and you know, some player uh, pending free agents and players that I might be interested in, but." You know, pursuing those players is what got the Florida Panthers into the problems that led to them having years and years of, of woes. And he said, well, why do I want to repeat that? And, yeah. you know, it's understanding where your team is at. Mark Bergevin has got a good beat on his team. And it may be just simply that, hey, they're not good enough. The, 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 the loss of Carey Price has been more significant than people maybe anticipated. And the solutions to our problems aren't there without a significant cost that will harm us in a far greater way. Well, it doesn't look like the Russian carry price back, and as you point out, that may uh, be a good thing for the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, yes or no answer? Canadian hockey team makes the playoffs this year. No, zero teams in the playoffs. I think, I agree. Every, I think everything I, I, I trending against dead. them. What's that? I think they're all, they're all dead at this point, and I mean zero chance for anybody. Well, when you start to look to, and you, like, so Vancouver's trying to transition from an older team to a younger team. So, you, you know, they're, they're, in the, they're, they're on the fringes of the race. The problem for the uh, Vancouver Canucks is, is that Anaheim and San Jose have really picked up their game. Yep. And, and, and so if, if Anaheim and San Jose, well, maybe there's a different story there. But I can't imagine where Jim Benning, in, in his transition from an older team to a younger team, is going to start trading draft picks or younger players to try to just make the playoffs. That Calgary, to me, the numbers are clearly, the trends are clearly against them. Edmonton, just not there. Uh, you know, we talked about the Montreal Canadiens. Toronto's out, and, and, and I think Ottawa's out as well. And Winnipeg, who was a great story last year, along with Ottawa, to me, losing record in the division for the Winnipeg Jets, losing record on the, on the road, losing record in the Western Conference, not making the playoffs. Losing record in the Central Division. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the Winnipeg Jets. They don't make the playoffs. Does somebody go? Do two guys go? Do Ladd and Bufflin come back? How do you, how, if you're the GM in Winnipeg, how, how does this play out for you? Well, I, I think there's a lot of moving parts. And number one is is evaluating where your team is at. And, and, and you're not just where you're at now. I, I, I think it's, to, in my view, it's become clear that the Winnipeg Jets are not going to make the playoffs. And there's, there, there's too many trends that are working against them. 
So that's number one. Number two is, okay, we know that Kevin Shevel Dayoff has been uh, in, in talks from, the, from last year on D Dustin Bufflin and Andrew Ladd. So when you start to consider where these players are at, and he understands what the price for them is. And now he's trying to figure out, okay, what does this mean vis-a-vis -vis my young players? Is it the right term? Is it the right dollars? And then he now can evaluate what could be my return for these players. His expiring contracts, which is what Bufflin and Ladd have, are very, very attractive. And they're even more attractive to the top teams that are trying to bolster their lineups. And I think that's where, you know, Kevin Shevel day off, if the scouting efforts are going to be made, who are the teams that are calling that are the top teams? Because that's who I would imagine are after them that will be offering, you know, something that can help them in the future. You know, Kevin's going to have to weigh out too. Okay, I can maybe make a trade and maybe I get one of them back in the summertime in free agency. and, and Or maybe, you know what, I, I just got to not consider that. And for me and my team, what I can get in return for them is going to be something that helps us not only uh, going forward, but really sets us up in terms of our salary cap. So I, I, I would imagine that the calls are, are numerous. Uh, to Kevin Shevel Dayoff, and I would be very, very, very surprised if both of them are there uh, post trade deadline day. And if you ask me to to bet on it, I would say that Bufflin has a better chance of being there, and Lad to me almost no chance. Yeah, I've got to agree with that. I think there's one Dustin Bufflin in the NHL, and there are you know Andrew Ladd is a great player, a great leader. But there's more than one Andrew Ladd, more than one guy that can do what he does. There's one Dustin Bufflin. If Bufflin does get moved, though, and you hear, you hear the L.A. Kings being rumored, if the Kings get Bufflin, do you just shut down the Western Conference and, and send him right to the Cup Final? Nope, not at all. Uh, okay. I don't think it's about – I never think it's about one player. I mean, you're always trying to strengthen yourself. So, you know, there's no telling what other teams – I mean, you talk about Chicago or St. Louis who, who are in the hunt out, out west as well, the Dallas Stars. I mean, what, what, what it might do then at that point in time, you know, is, is make other players – and other defensemen or other types of players more attractive in terms of saying we have to get that guy because we we now have fallen behind it's unless a deal for bufflin goes down at the last second where la gets them and the other teams don't have a chance you know that would be the only scenario where you would say okay that's a significant step ahead but otherwise you see the snowball effect I see a big snowball effect, and certainly when you're talking about players, again, expiring contracts like Ladd, like Bufflin, that can make a, a like a real impact to your team uh, down the stretch and in the playoffs, I mean, th those are going to be very attractive players. But what's the snowball effect, the domino effect for other players? That does, like, all of a sudden the LA Kings getting Dustin Bufflin, and, and you, you, you know, we talked about this last week uh, on the Leafs panel, that does Dion Phaneuf become attractive to a team trying to compete with the LA Kings if they get Dustin Bufflin? And, you know, does a team say, hey, listen, you know what, you take salary back or, you know what, we can afford the salary and we want a Dion Phaneuf like that. I mean, there's also a snowball effect outside of the pending unrestricted free agents. Last thing we'll talk about here before we sign off episode number one, Toronto Maple Leafs have a new logo. And uh, they're taking it back to, I think, with what, 1938 or something to the 60s, uh, a time when they had a lot of success, won a lot of Stanley Cups. They got a new logo. It's got some great historic meaning to it. What did you think of it? 
I love it. Uh, you know, my, my mother was Punch Imlac's secretary, and she was there when they won the Stanley Cup in 1962. So, uh, you know, that's a logo. Uh, that, that emblem uh, was one that was there. A reasonable facsimile of it was there. It's, it's been built off of it. So, you know, to me, I, I think, you know, the future is what the Maple Leafs are looking towards, but they want to celebrate their past. And you think about 62 and 63 and the Stanley Cups, uh, you, you know, that happened in succession and ultimately the last one in 67. It's a nice way to honor the past and, and still look forward. I, I, I really, really like the album. I, I personally believe when I look at the Chicago Blackhawks and the Detroit Red Wings, the Montreal, they haven't changed their emblem. They they haven't changed it. And to me, Montreal Canadiens have, have have been, you know, the top. When you think about their everything they do, you know, this is who we are. It's the New York Yankees, right? Why change? Yeah. I think that the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, you know, stick stay with this. It, it, it really is a significant logo, and it's obviously the Toronto Maple Leafs are a significant franchise, uh, not only in the NHL, but around the world with sports franchises with a, with a major following. I, I think it's really good. And then, you know, all the different things, you know, the, what, the, what the emblem means with the, with the veins and everything. Yeah. It, it, it reflects a, a long, long, and, and what is a very good 100-year history of the Toronto Maple Leafs, despite, you know, a number of years in the last 50 not being so good. <laughs> I'll be just throw that, yeah, a number of years out of the last 50, <laughs> not so good. Just an insignificant small period of time there, the last 50. Well, you know, you think about the, uh, you know, 93 and when Cliff Fletcher came in, a lot of excitement and the Pat Quinn years were good in Toronto, right? So I, I, I think when you start to factor in no Stanley Cups, you know, no Stanley Cup finals, it's easy to say they haven't had success success but they've had success uh not of the championship caliber kind but th right. there's been some really really good seasons and some real top-notch players come through the toronto maple leafs in the last 50 years yeah and uh you know according to forbes they're not the number one most valuable franchise in the league so maybe this will peak jersey sales because we all know that uh, they need a little bit of money these days the toronto maple leafs franchise <laughs> all right that'll do it episode one week one of the Button and Kelly Hockey Podcast. We will be, be, we will be back next week uh, with lots more to talk about around the NHL and in hockey in general. Thanks, Greg. Thank you, Mike.